everybody. Hope everybody's having a good day. Hope you're enjoying 
seventh day of the week, the day of rest and worship. Let's go in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Thank you, Father, for getting us through the night. Thank you for getting us through the week. Thank you for giving us more time to get ready and to repent and to prepare to meet you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these things. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us today to understand what is being said. Help us, Lord, to become more into the center of your will. Help us to understand your spirit better. Help us to understand the scriptures better. And please, Lord Heavenly Father, please help us to learn our lessons and stop repeating our mistakes. Father, today we're going to learn about justification. We ask you, Father, to help us understand what it really is and how we achieve it. Please deliver us from the false doctrines of false religion. Deliver us from all lies and from all deception. And realign our thoughts and our beliefs and our doctrines to what the truth really is. Deliver us from all evil. I ask you, Lord Heavenly Father, to move in this sermon today. Please speak through me, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and help us, Lord, to apply the truth to our lives so that we would not just be people who only hear the Word of God, but rather we would be people that would actually do the Word of God, that we would be obedient to you, and that we, would, that we will be found faithful to you. From this point forward, that we would become totally faithful to you, Father. Please help us in this, and may your will prevail in this sermon, in this service, and in our lives, each and every one of us individually. You are Lord. You are God. You are our kinsman redeemer. Through your blood, we live. And through your spirit, we live. In your name and for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, so be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. Let's turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. We're reading from the Alpha and Omega Bible translation. The Alpha and Omega Bible translation, Matthew 11. And today we're talking about justification. That word is thrown around a lot by the Church of Babylon, the synagogue of Satan. Church that Mostly, for the most part, most denominations of the Church of the Synagogue of Satan, the Church of the World, most denominations of it teach that justification is you believe that God is real. And you say one prayer, and you say, I'm sorry, 
And that's enough. And then instantly, like a magical wand, you are justified and you receive justification and you don't you don't have to do anything for the rest of your life. Anything for the rest of your life. There's magic and power in your verbal words of what you say with your mouth with one prayer, regardless of what you do with the rest of your life. That is what most denominations teach in false Christianity. Their idea of justification is instant magic of you not having to do anything other than one prayer, and most of the time that prayer can be just repeating somebody else's words. You can read the last page of a gospel track or the last page of a ministry book and repeat their words, and that's all it takes to them, to them in their doctrine, just read the words of somebody else, just read somebody else's prayers. And that theology of reading other people's prayers on Facebook, and email, across the Internet, and in books, and on TV, repeat other people's prayers, and God will accept other people's prayers on our behalf because we're repeating somebody else's prayers. And that's nonsense. People need to get away, get away from reading other people's prayers. God does not accept you repeating what somebody else says. God wants to hear your own words, your own repentance, your own sincerity, your own heart. That's what he wants to hear, not somebody else's words. It's nonsense of all these books and Internet of reading other people's prayers is total nonsense. You've got to get away from it. God wants to hear your heart, your words, not someone else's. Now, to fully, really and truly understand justification, we need to read a lot of verses. And this is true every week of whatever we talk about, whatever we study, we need to read a lot of the Bible. So many people read only very small pieces of Scripture and think they understand something. But just like a movie or a TV show, if you only watch five minutes of it, you're not going to fully understand it. You have to read the entire Bible. You have to. And for anyone to claim that they really understand the Bible or that they are in any kind of a ministry but have never read the entire Bible is ignorance. 
you're going to have a personal ministry or if you're going to claim to really understand scripture and true doctrine and know the truth you got to read the bible all of it to see the whole picture the full complete picture to just pick a verse here and a verse there is not sufficient because that will confuse you and that is one verse theology or even two or three verse theology of the world of Babylon of confusion is pick and choose which verses you want to read and believe and not get the full picture and it just doesn't work we have to read a lot of scripture to get a full picture and to truly 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 understand Amen. so I will start in Matthew 11 verse 19 Matthew 11 verse 19 but let's go back verse or two Let's go back to verse 16, even 15. Let's go back to verse 15. Let's start in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's talking about spiritual ears, not talking about fleshly ears. It's talking about spiritual ears. In other words, if you think that you're saved, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to know the truth, well, listen up and listen spiritually. Now, it doesn't use the word spiritual there, but if you read throughout the Bible and all the many, many times that it uses this phrase and phrases like it, you read the entire Bible and you pray and fast and you become, come to know Christ intimately, deeply, then you start to have more spiritual understanding of scripture which gives you the knowledge that this is talking spiritually so listen up spiritually and understand spiritually and think spiritually whenever you read these words that if you have eyes to see or ears to hear it's talking about spiritually and you have to think spiritually and you should always put on that thinking cap that says to you, okay, I need to think spiritually. Amen. Verse 16, but to what shall I prepare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the others and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. What that means is, People blowing the trumpet in vain, evangelizing in vain, playing music in vain, whatever, that the prophet is proclaiming the gospel or the pastor or the minister or you or anybody proclaiming the gospel, and yet people do not respond. They just ignore it. Amen. And this is what this generation is like that 
We declare the truth and they ignore it. Play the flute and they do not dance. We wail and they do not mourn. For John came eating. I mean, neither eating. John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say that he has a demon. So John fasted. And he was a Nazarite. He had a Nazarite vow. John the Baptizer had a Nazarite vow from birth. And even though he was this holy man who fasted often and had the Nazarite vow, truly called of God, people still called him a demon. Or that he had a demon. That was their claim, a false accusation. And the son of mankind came eating, meaning not fasting as often, even though he did fast 40 days and 40 nights at least once. Overall, he did not fast often, and neither did his disciples fast often, according to the scriptures. Not only here, but in other places as well, we know that they did not fast often. They asked him, how come your disciples do not fast often? His response was basically, why would they fast with the bridegroom present with them? Amen. While the bridegroom is with you, you celebrate. You eat. You drink. You be joyous. You be merry while the bridegroom is with you. But once he is taken away, go back to heaven, then the people should fast more. That's basically his response. So the Son of Mankind, Jesus, came eating, not fasting as often, and drinking, talking about alcohol in the context that John had a Nazarite vow, did not drink alcohol, but Jesus did at the Passover supper every year and throughout the year, I'm sure. His first miracle was making wine, real wine, not grape juice. This is not child's play. He made real wine. And they say, behold, a gutterous person, an alcoholic. That was the accusation. The false accusation is that he was an alcoholic, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her works. So basically Jesus says, but yeah, I didn't fast so often, and yeah, I did drink, but, and yes, I did hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners, but, that word yet can be translated also as the word but or however. Yet or however or but is translated correctly, but you also got to understand it can be translated many different ways. Wisdom, but or yet wisdom is vindicated by her works. In other words, the result or the fruit of what I have done will vindicate. That is basically what he is saying. I will be vindicated because the fruit of what I have done will be good, not bad. Good result, not bad. Now this word works here in this verse also can be translated many different ways. And I would like for you to change that word works as I continue to perfect and edit 
the Alpha and Omega Bible. And Robert, you don't really have to sing me this one because I've already got it written down. But I would like for everybody to mark out the word works, and we're going to translate it as offspring. Vindicated by her offspring. It can be translated as offspring or fruit or children. And so we're going to put offspring, and then we're going to put in parentheses, we will put fruit slash children. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her offspring. Parentheses, fruit, slash, children. That word offspring can refer to many different things. And that is why it is a better translation rather than putting just the word fruit or the word children. We put offspring and then we explain it in parentheses that it can refer to fruit or children. It is the result you could even use the word result. It is the result or the true or what is the, the end conclusion or the end result, the fruit that comes from the working. Offspring, the children. Now, it can even be children because here the word wisdom can be used in an analogy of a woman. Throughout the book of Proverbs and other books of the Bible, wisdom is described as a woman. Even the nation of Israel and the church used in the sense of a woman being symbolic, symbolic or the analogy of a woman. So using the symbolism of wisdom as a woman, she has an offspring of children. So that is when you could use the word children if you're talking symbolically. But he's really talking about the result or the end result, not, not literal children. So you've got to think spiritually here that it's not talking about children, even though many times this Greek word is translated as a son or a daughter or a child or children. But that's not what he's really talking about. He's talking about the true or, or the result. And I would also like for you to put a footnote of a Bible reference to prepare with there in the under or beside this verse, margin or somewhere here, right in. Right in um, Luke 7, verse 35. Luke 7, verse 35. Because, because that verse is the same, the same verse. You know how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are parallel, parallel gospels repeating one another. And so that's where you would find the same quote is in Luke 7, verse 35. Now, concerning justification, the word vindicated, vindicated in verse 19, 
in the King James Version is translated as justified. So vindicated is the word that we're referring to, the main point of this sermon. Vindicated is translated as justified. So you can put that right under the word vindicated. You could write justified, KJV, justified KGV. To let you know that's how it's translated in KGV. So that tells us, because it's translated as vindicated, that justification is vindication, being vindicated. Now, the word justification can be translated another as another Greek word that can be translated many different ways, many, many different ways. Vindication or being vindicated is one of many different ways that it can be translated. We'll look at many other verses that will show you other ways of translating it. Then we'll get an overall picture of this. And you cannot just say just because one verse alone that is vindication, that that's the only way. No, it can be translated many different ways. We have to look at many different verses get the full picture and the full understanding. So if the fruit of his works and the result of his actions, that wisdom will be vindicated by her offspring or her fruit or her result, is basically saying that what he has done will be justified or declared right, vindicated, that he was not in the wrong. That's what vindicated means, that he was not in the wrong. You're, you're declared that your, your works are righteous, that you have done the right thing, or that you have been cleared of being guilty. If somebody, if the police arrest you and you go to, into court, and the judge says uh, the case is dismissed, then you have been vindicated and you are cleared of the accusations. You are cleared of the charges. Vindication. Now let's go to chapter 12, verse 37. Matthew 12, verse 37. For because of your words, you will be acquitted. Now that word acquitted is a legal word just like vindication. And that is why it's translated as justified in the King James Version. So you can write right underneath acquitted you could write justified, AGV. Now let's back up a little bit. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, remember, fruits, the result, or make the tree corrupted and its fruit corrupted, for the tree is known by its fruit. You generation of poisonous snakes, or vipers, 
How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good person brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil person brings out of his evil treasure, out of his heart, what is evil. But I tell you that every worthless or vain word that people speak, there will be a decree of repay for it in the day of judgment. For because of your words, you will be acquitted, vindicated, justified, let off the hook. Or because of your words, you will be condemned, one or the other. So a day of judgment, when you stand before the judge at the court hearing of the day of judgment, when you are judged for your words and your works, <coughs> excuse me, and everything you said and done in your life, According to the book of law, according to your sins and the transgressions of the law and so forth, by your words you would be either acquitted or condemned. Amen. Then let's go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verse 29. Luke 7, verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged Theo's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John, the baptized. Now, the word that refers to justification is the phrase, acknowledged is justice, acknowledged feels justice. In other words, they justified God having been baptized for the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected Theo's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Verse 30 here is very significant and should be made a note of in the front or back of your Bible. Let's take time to do that right now because this verse is so significant, verse 30, that tells us that the Pharisees did not get baptized by John the baptizer. Everybody thinks that they did get baptized at the Jordan River. But the truth is they did not. When they came for baptism, yeah, they did come for baptism. And John rebuked them and said something similar to, Who has warned you of the wrath to come? Repent. And that when God comes, he will baptize you with fire. So what he did when they came for baptism is John rejected them and refused to baptize them, and they did not get baptized them. He gave them a very strong, very bold rebuke. You cannot baptize everybody that comes for baptism. You cannot do it. 
because people have to repent. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. They have to repent. They have to agree that Jesus is God. The Pharisees did not do that. They have to accept much truth, not just the Sabbath, not just the holy days. But the Sabbath and the holy days and the law, the letter of the law, was sufficient, then John would have baptized them because the Pharisees did keep all the holy days, the seventh day, knew the Old Testament front and back, inside and out. So the letter of the law, being legalistic, was not sufficient for baptism. Repentance is required and going by the Spirit of God and accepting the Spirit of God was required, is required, so the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected, did not justify God in the works of God and the spirit of God. But in verse 29, the other group of people and some of the tax collectors that he hung out with, which people despised, people do despise the government, and that's not always justified. To always despise and hate government. According to Scripture, all government is ordained of God, and even even the wicked king is ordained of God. He established the kingdoms. He established the governments of man. He established the kings, and he pulls them down. Even Babylon itself was ordained of God. Chastise the Israelites. Chastise us. There must be both darkness and light. There must be both deception and truth so that you can make a choice and not be a robot, not be a computer chip programmed to run only one way, like many people believe in their way of thinking of predestination and choosing and election and all that, thinking that you have no choice. They think you're just a computer chip. You have, you have no free will. You have no choice. I believe that's part of Calvinism, I think. The truth is you do have free will and you do have a choice because there is darkness and light, which there must be, and there is Babylon and confusion and false doctrine and false religion, which there must be, so that you do have free will, so that you are a human and not a program in a computer, so that you can grow and make decisions and choose God and choose the right path. Amen. If we was born rich and died rich and lived a rich life all of our life, then we would be spoiled, spoiled rotten, and really live a miserable life because of all of the filthy money. Amen. But by living in poverty and trial and tribulation and suffering, we learn our lessons and become the master pottery that we must become. 
We have to endure the valleys and the trials and the fires of life and the tribulation. Perfect us to become the great masterpiece of God, of what he wants us to become, even higher than the angels, judging the angels and ruling the universe. Amen. We must be tried. We must be tested. We must develop spiritual muscle only because there is choice, only because there is trial and suffering and tears and death and justification. Being made righteous. The people justified God that he was right, that we are sinners and that we did need a Savior. This is what this means in verse 29. The people justified God in that his law and his ways and his judgments and his direction is correct and right. And God is vindicated and he is just and he is right. We are sinners and we must be baptized. Or we were sinners and we must be baptized. Amen. By being baptized, we justify God, we vindicate God, we vindicate the scriptures, and we declare that God is righteous and every man has sinned. And his ways is right, not ours. That's what it was all about when I got saved is I finally concluded my way was wrong and his way was right, that he was justified, that I was wrong the whole time, that I was a sinner and that my way and my will was wrong and he was right. And from this moment forth, that his, his way, that it would be his way. So we justify God when we finally hit hard, hard rock bottom and say, my way is wrong, your way is right. Amen. We get baptized. Amen. Praise the Lord. So now let's go down here to verse 34. This starts quoting what we read earlier that I told you to make a note of. Luke 7, verse 34. The son of mankind has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, got this person and a drunkard or alcoholic, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. So we read in Matthew 11 that wisdom is vindicated by works and we change that to offspring slash or princities fruit children so let's do the same here to make these two verses match they must match because this is both verses that we read in matthew 11 and this verse both is quoting jesus now he didn't say both he said it's one way or another but they don't match right now so we're going to make them match so they'll cross out the word children and put offspring so it will match what we translate it in Matthew. Mark out children, put offspring, princities, fruit, slash, children. Offspring, princities, fruit, slash, children. Vindicated is, wisdom is vindicated by her offspring, her fruit, her result, her children. Notice the word her, her, referring to wisdom as a woman. We didn't see that in Matthew. And the reason for that is Matthew and Luke had one word different. 
because Luke was not there. Luke came later after Jesus died. Matthew was there. Luke was not. Luke came along later after Jesus died and, and discovered about Jesus and got saved and eventually wrote the book of Luke. But Matthew actually walked with Jesus, and Luke heard about Jesus. And so when Luke wrote it, he got it one, one word different and put the word her in there. Now, I cannot say for sure that Matthew was more correct just because he walked with Jesus. That's not automatic. It's not automatic that Matthew's version is more correct because you can walk with Jesus, know him in person, see him in person, and still get one word of the quotation wrong because we're humans. We all make mistakes. It's not automatic that his version was more correct. It's very possible that Luke's version, which he got from interviewing people and talking to many different people, he probably may have even talked to Matthew. Very, 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 very likely that he would have went and talked to Matthew and to uh, Paul, which he did walk in uh, fellowship with Paul a whole lot. Luke did. Paul and Luke were really good friends and they traveled together a lot, evangelized together a lot. And, of course, Paul didn't know Jesus either until after his death. But Luke probably did interview Peter and John and Matthew and those people that did walk hand in hand with Jesus during his life on earth. And having interviewed many different people that did walk hand in hand with Jesus during the lifetime of Jesus on earth. Somebody said, Luke, what Jesus said was wisdom is indicated by her through offspring. And that makes plenty of sense. And whether he used the word her or not really doesn't make a, a heel out of beans or, a, you know, doesn't make any big difference because we don't need to go by the letter, every little A, B, C, D. We don't have to go by the exact letter, but rather by the spirit. What is the point of the verse? What is the point of the phrase? That is what is much more important than whether it is her or it or whatever. Don't become so obsessed like so many people are about every little tiny dot. Point, the spirit, the principle of the teaching is what we must focus on. Amen. And again, the principle of this verse is the end result will vindicate God, that he is justified, that his way is right. Amen. Now let's go to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 14. Luke 18, verse 14. Let's go back to verse uh, 10. Start in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee 
than the other a tax collector. This tax collector just keeps on coming up in here because people hate government and they got to stop hating government. We have to have government. We have to have laws upon this earth that will come and arrest people when they cause trouble and when they kill people and when they steal. We have to have government and we have to have taxes. We have to have taxes. The roads have to be built. We have to have roads and a sewer system and a water system and an electric company. We have to have these things. But people hate the tax collectors. You have the religious person and the government person that people hate. You've got these two different types of people, both going into the temple. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Theos, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers and unjust adulterers, and even like this, ooh, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes to all of all that I get. But this tax collector, staying in some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, Theos, be merciful to me, this sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house, meaning the grave, going back to his family cemetery, is what that's referring to, having been acquitted. You can write justified right above that, since that is how it's translated in the KGV. Man went to his his house or his cemetery, having been acquitted or justified or vindicated, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this man who had a spirit of repentance, a mind of repentance, and not just going by the letter of the law, but confessing that we're wrong, we have sinned, we have transgressed God's commandments, and we, we, we need a Savior, surrendering to him, Confessing our sins, not just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry doesn't cut it. i sorry is just vain, idolous words. Unless it's backed up with confession of what you've done wrong and that you are guilty and you did do wrong and this is what you did wrong and this is why it's wrong and that you're not going to do it again. That's true repentance. So this man was confessing his sins, acknowledging the need of a Savior. And because of that, he will be acquitted on Judgment Day. And it's not, it is not that he was always innocent. He was guilty. He's not being acquitted because he's innocent. Rather, he's being acquitted or made righteous because he has acknowledged his fault, his sin, and his need of a Savior. And 
is acknowledging, acknowledging, uh, he is repenting. <clears throat> and we know also that he would have gotten baptized later. We don't have to have it written in ABC. We don't have to have it written in Scripture to know, to understand, to have common sense that this man who will be acquitted on Judgment Day, that he would have followed up. He would, he would not have gotten up out of that temple and then gone back to his old life. No, he would have continued his journey of repentance and being baptized and going to church and, and continuing to grow in God and in the truth and in repentance and obedience. He would have continued on. He would, not, he would not have lived the rest of his life saying, okay, I said that prayer is done. No. But rather he would have continued the journey. Amen. Now let's go to the book of Acts, Acts 13, which, which was written by Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And Luke was a doctor from Syria. He was a Gentile. And Luke was the only Gentile that wrote a book of the New Testament. The only Gentile that wrote a book of the New Testament. Luke was a doctor. Yeah, one of those evil doctors that you hate so much. People have got to stop hating people just because they are a doctor or they are a Jew or they are a government official or whatever. Come on now. Get over your legalism and your prejudice. Get over your prejudice. Get over your legalism. Get over your spirit of rebellion against government. We need doctors. I would not be alive today to teach you today if it had not been for doctors and medicines and hospitals. And that's honest truth. God is my witness. Amen. We need doctors. We need hospitals. We need doctors. But we also need to always second-guess them, question them, study, see about what our options are, about natural health, herbs, massage, essential oils, and, of course, seek divine healing, pray, fast, Seek divine healing, but divine healing does not always occur. And just like darkness and trial and tribulation, there must be sickness. There must be. And you can pray and you can fast more often and more heavy than anyone else in this world. And God might not still yet, might not heal you. This theology, that all you got to do is pray and fast, and God will absolutely heal you, and anyone that fasts and prays is a false theology. Because we have to have suffering 
sickness and disease on this earth, and it is the fruit, the offspring, the consequence of the sins of Adam and Eve, and we cannot escape it. We cannot escape the curse that is put upon every human on this earth. I'm under that curse. You are under that curse because we are the children of Adam and Eve. And we cannot escape that curse until the time comes for the fulfillment of Revelation 21 and 22 of paradise, the new heaven and new earth. And the old shall pass away. And we have the new remodeled heavens and earth, new remodeled universe, when it says that the curse will be removed, that there will be no more curse. Until that day comes, there will be sickness and disease, even for the saints, even for Paul. Paul had sickness, disease, physical affliction when he said that he saw the Lord three times to remove this thorn from my flesh. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul said, therefore, I will be glad and rejoice in my infirmities. That thorn in his side, his flesh, was not a sin. So meaning almost everybody teaches that Paul was saying, remove this sin from me. No, that's not what it was because God would never say my grace is sufficient for you about asking for sin deliverance. Rather, the whole context of the entire chapter is about fleshly sickness, infirmities. Look at the context. Paul sought healing in his body, and God said, no, I will not heal you. It happens. We must live in reality. God is not a genie where you can rub the bottle and make three wishes, and he does everything you want him to do every time. He's not a genie, and he does not always answer every prayer, and he will not, will not heal everybody that fasts and prays and seeks him. The physical affliction tries us, and we need that trial. We need the sickness. We need the pain. We need the affliction in our bodies so that we will cry out harder to God and seek him harder and realize that we're in the flesh and that we need the redemption of our body. Amen. We need death and sickness and trial and suffering and cancer and car wrecks and loss of family and friends to make us cry out for the redemption of our body, to make us want paradise. If we lived in paradise now, we wouldn't need paradise in the future. People want to live in heaven right now. Well, you're not in heaven right now. You're right here on this earth, and we all suffer the consequences. Death and sickness, and that's just reality, and we have to embrace it. Paradise is for the future, not right now. Amen. Acts 13, verse 39. Acts 13, verse 39. 
Let's go back up to verse 35, Acts 13, 35. Therefore, he also says in another place that you would not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In other words, the book of Psalms had promised that Jesus would not suffer decay when he was in the tomb for three days and three nights. For David, after he had served the purpose of Theos in his own generation, fell asleep, talking about died, and was laid among his forefathers and underwent decay. David died and his body decayed, but Jesus died and did not decay. Verse 37, but he whom Theos raised did not undergo decay. Jesus did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, who did not decay, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, that word believes makes people think that all you got to do is believe and you'll be freed from all things from sin, from sickness, from judgment, whatever. But I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of people who believe. And they are sinners, and they are not repenting. Some of them are Pharisees, amen, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, but in a legalistic manner, believing that men still must be circumcised and all that foolishness. I know a lot of hypocrites that believe, people that are legalistic, and then some people who are not legalistic, some people that are very, very liberal, that think you can be on drugs and still be saved and, and all that. But a lot of people think you can do anything you want. You don't have to obey God, and you still be saved. Very liberal people, so you have the two different extremes of either the legalistic people or the liberal people. And none of those are saved. Hey, they believe that they're saved. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the Bible, or so they claim. But they are not delivered from anything, and they're not saved, and their sins are not erased. We must understand that this word believe is very watered down. Very, very watered down. True belief. True belief is more than a head knowledge that God exists and that the Bible is real. You really, truly believe, then you will obey because you really believe there is a judgment day and that time is short and that you must pass the test and you must Face the judgment seat of God for everything. True belief. Not just head knowledge. True belief is followed through with obedience. True belief is followed through with obedience. In fact, many times in the New Testament, the word disobedience, or they did not obey, is 
Greek word for not just disobey, but also did not believe. It's combined. It's the Greek and the Pale, which is Pale Hebrew, is very rich language. English, today's English, is very much watered, watered down, very weak language. But the Asian languages was extremely rich, full of meaning. And to disobey in Greek would be not only to uh, disobey like we think of it, but also to not believe. And to believe or not believe is more than head knowledge, but actually not to obey. So you cannot separate belief from obedience. So understanding the richness of the Greek, if we was to put it in more words, because we have to use more words in English to get the rendering and the understanding of what the Greek language would actually mean. So the word believe here, let's mark it out. And let's use more English words to really get the full, rich, complete meaning of what it should say. So I'm going to mark out the word believe, believes, and let's put in right underneath that, entrust, slash, commit. And it's the words entrust, slash, commit, parentheses, their soul to him. Their soul to him. So this should read in English to get the full meaning. And through him, everyone who entrusts slash commit their soul to him is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Then there's one more thing we have to explain, that word all things. The word all there <laughs> the word all there, even though many, many, many times we're, we say, it says all and it means all. It says all and it means everything. In English, yes, it does. But in Greek, no, it does not. No, it does not mean every little thing does not mean from every little sickness, from every little cold, from every little flu, from every, 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 everything. No. Actually, it means from each thing. From each individual thing. Sometimes it can refer to everything. And other times it can refer to just one thing. Or to each thing that you face. Each thing. But not necessarily all things, not necessarily everything. English and Greek are very different in their meaning, even though English comes from Greek more than any other language. There's some Latin, there's some German, there's some Spanish, and other languages, and France all combined into English. But English comes from Greek more than anything else. But, 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 English in all language is continually evolving. Language Throughout the history, ever since the first caveman and the first cavewoman, ever since Adam and Eve, there has been an evolution or evolving of the language, and it has not stopped evolving. 
even in English, they're adding words and taking away, away words from the dictionary every year, every year, every year they add and take away words from the English dictionary. It's an ever-changing language. And so was Greek, it was. And pure language will be restored and is already, already in the process, the process of being restored. The title of today's sermon, in case you might have read it, you may have read it on the uh, radio website or on the talk show website, you might have seen it labeled as justification, comma, what? Instead of what is justification, instead of what is justification, the title is actually justification, what is, backwards. And that's the way it was many times in the Greek, in the Aramaic, Neo-Hebrew, and even in today's time of sign language, that words would be in a different arrangement. And that's okay. That's okay. Language is changing and evolving. And we should not be obsessed with every little comma, every little dot, every little grammar mistake, and realize that there are different dialects different languages, different styles of speaking, and that English comes very much from Greek more than any other language. And sometimes that will come out in the way we speak. And as you grow closer and closer and closer and closer to God, your language will change and your grammar will change. Your thinking, your way of thinking, and your focus and your way of talking will change as you become more and more and more transformed into the more perfect image of the reflection of our Father. As we become to look more and more like our Father, our language will change as well. Now, let me see here for a second here. The point of that particular verse 39, <clears throat> more than anything else, of why I want it to come or the reason I need it to come to this particular verse <clears throat> is to just overall get people to understand that in justification, you have to do more than just believe that there is a God, what his name is, and what the law is and what the truth is, is more than head knowledge. But you have to actually entrust your soul, commit your soul, it is marriage, to God. True church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And that's more than just agreeing to follow him. A 
think about that. Let's say that again because that is powerful. It's more than agreeing to follow him. You can follow me to the grocery store. That don't mean very much. We can go on a date. A man and a woman can go on a date. And you can date and you can date and go on another date and go on another date. But everything changes when you slide the ring on the finger and say, I commit to you. We're no longer just dating, but now we are committed and we can't see no one else. And now we are tied together mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, in every aspect, the man and woman are tied together. And now we are tied to God. We become his bond servants. We are chained together and nobody can separate us. We are marrying, we are entrusting and committing our soul to him. We are becoming his bride. Amen. So justification, we must become married through Jesus Christ. We must become his bride. We want justification. It's more than just mere words and mere belief. Now, we're going to start reading in the book of Romans. But before we can read Romans, I'm going to give you a warning about, not only am I going to give you a warning, I'm going to let Peter do it for me. Let's go to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and Peter is going to warn you to not get confused about what Paul wrote. Because when we go into the book of Romans, it is so confusing. And so many people go off path and away from the truth by reading Romans and Galatians, because they read those books and they say, well, Paul is against the law. Paul said, we don't have to obey God. We don't have to keep the commandments. We don't have to repent. We don't have to obey God. We can just freely do anything we want to do. We can worship any day we want. We can eat anything we want. We can just do anything we want. That's what they get from Paul's writings. And Peter warned us against that. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15. 2 Peter 3 verse 15. Give everybody time to get there. And that's very close to the book of Revelation. Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says this, And regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, Paulos, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking of them as these things, or in them of these things, in which are some things hard or difficult to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, 
as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Amen. So he says, Peter said that uh, the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul, some things are hard to understand and people twist what Paul was saying. So that was already happening in Peter's lifetime that people were twisting what Paul taught. It was already happening. Taking the scriptures, not only Paul, but even the Old Testament, taking the scriptures and twisting them and, and still happening today. But Paul's letters are hard to understand. They really are. And again, the key to that of not becoming confused and not getting off path and not being deceived and not twisting it is to read, or, to read his writings in the greater context and to read the entire Bible and to compare what Paul said with what Peter said and what James said and what Jesus said. We have to compare it all. Now, with that, with that warning, let's go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Romans is before Corinthians. Romans chapter 2. God willing, we're going to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. God will give me permission to do that and the spirit and energy to do that. Romans 2, verse 1. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, we have no excuse. Paul, I mean, yeah, Paul is writing to the congregation of called out ones in the city of Rome. He's writing to the Christians in the city of Rome. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes, talking about the unjust judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you, have, for you who judge practice the same things. A lot of people take this verse number one right here and a lot of other verses, like Matthew 7, verse 1, and say, so we're not supposed to judge anyone. We have no right to judge anybody. Almost every so-called Christian and every lost person, which is the same, almost everybody on this earth says, I have no right to judge anyone. And they would take this verse and distort it and twist it just like Peter said they would. And say, so we can't judge anybody. But... If you read it carefully, it's not saying you can't judge anyone. What it's saying is that you're a hypocrite, that you're doing the same sin. You're doing the same thing. You're practicing the same thing you're condemning. So it's not saying you can't judge anyone. It's just saying overall principle is don't be a hypocrite. Don't judge someone else if you're guilty of the same thing or worse, or worse sin. Talk about hypocrisy. Verse 2, and we know that the judgment of Theos 
rightly falls upon those who practice such things, being a hypocrite. But you, or but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of Theos? Do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God when you're judging people for doing the same thing that you're doing? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of Theos leads you to repentance? In other words, Paul says that we should repent and that the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the patience of God should lead us to repent of our hypocrisy and our sins that we're guilty of. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath or vintage or repay for yourself. The day of wrath or the day of vintage or the day of repay and revelation or the manifestation of the righteous judgment. Robert, revelation needs to be changed to manifestation. And everybody can go ahead and change that revelation. Change it to manifestation. It's the manifestation of the righteous judgment of Theos. In other words, the day is going to come. The day is going. The judgment will be manifestation. Mana <laughs> manifested. Amen. People are so stubborn. I tell you what. People are so stubborn, rebellious. That's one of the number one problems that I see in people. One of the most major problems I see in people is that they are so stubborn, so stubborn. They will not confess even a tiny little sin. So stubborn. But the truth will be vindicated. The judgment will be manifested. Verse 6, talking about Theos, who will repay to each person according to their works. According to their works. Does it say according to your faith? Does it say according to your belief? Does it say according to whether or not you said the first prayer? Or does it say you're going to be judged and you're going to receive the repay or the wages according to what you have done, your works, your deeds? Amen. Verse 7, to those who are, who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immorality in more immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, underline selfishly, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. 
wrath, and in addition, tribulation is distressed upon ever so a man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with theos, but all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Pause there for a second. I know that's difficult to understand, as Peter said. But if anyone, any person on this earth will be judged by the law, how can we say law doesn't exist? Amen. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before Theos, but the doers of the law who will be acquitted, justified. If you want to, you can put justified in parentheses at the end of the sentence, if that might help you to remember. So let's read verse 13 again. For it's not the hearers, people who only hear about the law, who are just before Theos or righteous before Theos, but the doers of the law who will be justified, who will be acquitted. So if it is the people who do the law, perform the law, who will be acquitted. And how can we say the law doesn't exist or we should not obey any of the law and all laws done away? How can we say such things? Amen. Verse, I would like for you to add a uh, Bible verse reference there. At the end of verse 13, write this Bible verse reference. James 1, verse 21 through 25. That's James 1, verse 21 through 25. And also James 2, verse 14 to 26. James 2, verse 14 through 26. Now, before we finish this chapter, and we're going to, God willing, finish the chapter and go into chapter 3 as well, but, but before we do, we have to go and read those references. So let's take a bookmark, take a piece of paper, some kind of a bookmark, index card, Walmart receipt or something, put right there, and we'll come back to this, but verse 13 there said, those that do the law will be acquitted or justified. Not just those that hear the word, but those that do the word of the law. And we know that James talks about that, right? James talks about that, so let's pause there and read James, because that's the way you need to read the Bible. Okay? 
when you read the Bible, don't just just read through. Well, let's say, for example, you might say, today I'm going to read Genesis 1 through chapter 3. I'm going to read the first three chapters of Genesis. You might say that to yourself sometime. That might be your goal for that day. But when you read it and you come across something and you remember that there's another verse that talks about it, then you should pause, put a bookmark, and go read that other verse. Or maybe there might be a verse reference in the margin or in the footnote. Go and read those verses. Then come back and finish reading to finish out the chapters that you're going to read for that day. Don't just read through. Think about what you're reading. Pray about what you're reading. Seek God about what you're reading for understanding. And look at the cross-references. And look at and read the other verses that come into your mind. Look up where those verses are. If they're not in the margin, if they're not in the footnote, but you know that there's a verse about that and it comes into your mind, go find it. Then come back to the rest of your reading. That's how you grow in truth and understanding and how you start to understand Scripture more. Amen. And make notes in your Bible. When you find that other Bible verse that came into your mind, if it's not already in the footnote, or in the reference note, and you found another verse about it, write it in so that the next time you come across that same place in the Bible, you will have the note about the cross-reference, the other verse, and it will be there. And it will always be there for you. Amen. This is why you need to read the Bible in the real Bible and not just some electronic edition. Okay, people need to get away from the electronic editions of the Bible. I know I provide the PDF version of the Alpha and Omega Bible, but the only reason I provide that PDF is for people who don't have the money for the paperbacks. That's the only reason. The only reason. Just for people who don't, cannot get the paperback edition. But if you have a way of getting the paperback edition, that is what you need to be reading so that you can jot down notes. And not only so that you can mark notes in your Bible, but so that also your eyes can glance across both pages and God can guide you to another verse on the other side of the page. And certain words can stand out to you as God continues to lead you and guide you as you read and study the Bible. And God just does not move that way as much on an electronic version of the Bible. You need the real Bible and read it in the paperback version. That is so, so important. And you will grow more, much more and much faster and much easier by reading the real Bible in paper rather than electronic edition. Very important. So now let's go to James 1.
James is right after Hebrews. James 1, verse 21. James 1, verse 21 through 25. James 1, verse 21. Therefore, and by the way, James is the blood brother of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The blood brother, the real physical flesh and blood brother of Jesus. See, this is what James says. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, but once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, meaning the spiritual law, and abides by it, obeys it. This right here teaches us, underlying, abides by it, and the perfect law. Perfect law and abides by it, underlying those two phrases, because this teaches us we must obey some kind of a law. There is a law. There is a law that's not done away because we have to abide by it. That means you have to keep it. You have to observe it. You have to obey it. And it's the perfect law. Now, that's not the law of circumcision because the law of circumcision is in vain, useless, pointless, except for only as a foreshadowing. And animal sacrifices was only a foreshadowing. So those are not perfect laws. But the Ten Commandments, oh yeah, perfect. Ten Commandments, don't murder people, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, don't have any other false god, don't have any false god. These are perfect laws. Nothing wrong with these. Perfect law, the law of liberty, which means you have free choice. It's there for you, both a blessing and a curse, in life and death. It's your free choice, but it's good, and it's perfect. And it is a law of liberty because it does not bind us under useless ritual ceremonial practices. And it is the law of liberty because we do not have to follow a ritual of you must pray five times a day, exactly five, or exactly three, or exactly two, or exactly ten. Or you must be very legalistic in everything. And you must follow the letter of the law. That would be a law of bondage and not liberty. 
following every little letter of the law without any exceptions. And most, so many people think there are no exceptions. You know that. We taught that recently about the exceptions to the law. And if you have not heard that sermon yet, I think that might have been something like two or three weeks ago. You can go back and look. Find. You can find it. Seek and you will find. If you want to find it, you can find it. It's there for you. And find that sermon. Go back and listen to that if you've not yet. There's a law of liberty, meaning that there are exceptions and that we don't have to keep it by the letter, but we must keep it. We must abide it by the Spirit, which does not bind. And so, look intently, let's be as one that look intently at that perfect law, the law of liberty, and abide by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. Amen. So we must be a doer. We must become a doer. And this, again, is a major, huge, huge, huge problem in people that I see is that they think because they occasionally read the Bible and they pray and they have some head knowledge and they've they've said that prayer, so-called prayer of salvation, that they can run around with a chicken like a chicken with his head cut off wandering around, flying around, going anywhere they want to in all hours of the night, being children of the night rather than children of the day. Being children of the night, being children of darkness rather than children of the light. And thinking that they are saved and that they are followers of Jesus when they are not. They are not. They are hypocrites. Amen. That we have to be a doer of the law, not just a believer or somebody that listens. That we have to perform and abide by the law. So we'll go back to, uh, well, actually, let's look at chapter 2. But here in a few minutes, we'll go back to Romans. And you have to keep this in mind. Because if we don't keep what James said in mind, the blood brother of Jesus, if we do not keep what James says in our mind as we read Paul's writings, then we might become confused and think wrongfully that Paul is against the law. But we already read even Paul's words said that we're going to be judged by the law and that we must be doers of the law. They agree. James and Paul agree. But when we go back and read more of Paul's writings, Sometimes it feels like and sounds like that he's against the law, but the reason some of his writings sound like that is because he was speaking to a very legalistic groups of people who was trying to keep every little letter of the law, including even circumcision, without really knowing the spirit of God and without being... Uh, without following the spirit of God. Just very legalistic people, and he was trying to turn those people away from that legalism. 
That is why sometimes he sounds like he's against the law. He's not against all law. He's just against the old ritual, ceremonial laws of circumcision and animal sacrifices and clean and unclean meats. Yes, he was against those laws. But he was not against the Ten Commandments. He never spoke one word against the Ten Commandments. Paul never, ever, ever, ever spoke a word against the Ten Commandments or against the seventh day or against God's holy days or against tithing. Paul never, ever in any of his writings never said one word against the giving of tithes or the keeping of the seventh day and the holy days and the Ten Commandments. And yet people will twist and use Paul's words to say that the Ten Commandments and the seventh day and the holy days and tithes are all done away with when Paul never, ever, 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 ever even went that direction, not one step in that direction of teaching that those things are done away with. The entire context of Paul's writings was that we must be freed from the temporary ritual circumcision, which did nothing to cut piece of the part of the body off, does nothing. To remove the the foreskin does nothing. And that was what he was against. He was not against keeping the Sabbath the seventh day. Amen. Now, James 2, verse 14. James 2, verse 14 through 26. James 2, verse 14. What is it, my brother, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing, I need to get my bookmark, keep my place better here. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what, is, what use is that? If you're just saying, God bless you, I pray for you, I hope everything will be well with you, but you don't give your tithe to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow, if you do not help those in need, if it's talking about if you have it, that's common sense. They don't have to say that in ABC. We know it's common sense that is talking about if you have it and you don't give it. And you just say, I'll pray for you. What use is that? It's just vain words. And chances are you're only going to say one prayer anyway. You'll never think of them again if you have this mentality of not giving, not helping people. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no work behind it, if it has, if you don't actually do the work, then the faith is dead. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that Theos is one, that you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So in other words, you can take that two different ways. You are doing well to believe that Theos is one, not three. You are doing well, but that's not enough. That's not sufficient. The demons also believe. The demons also know that Theos is one. But they shudder. They're in fear. And you can also take it the other way, that you believe that you do well. You can take it as you are doing well or that you believe you're doing well. Either way, however you take it, the principle is still true. Two things, two principles to that verse. One, we do have one theos. That's the first commandment. One Lord, one spirit, one baptism, not three. Second principle of this verse is it is not sufficient just to have that head knowledge that there is a God, that there's one God, not a trinity. Hey, that's good to have that basic elementary childhood foundational foundation of, of one God. Hey, that's fine, but hey, the devils know this too. It's not sufficient because you must be a worker. You must bear forth fruit. You must work. You must do something for the Lord and not just believe. Verse 20, but but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father found righteous by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture, talking about Old Testament, was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham received Theos, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness when he was called the friend of Theos. You see that a man is found righteous, or even justified, by works and not by faith alone. But yet, the Church of Babylon will tell us, you don't have to lift a finger, and you don't have to have any work, and you don't have to have any fruit. That is the cornerstone of the Church of Babylon. No work, no law, no fruit, no nothing, just faith, faith alone, because they pull only individual verses, and they hate the book of James. They will very rarely ever, ever, very rarely ever read anything from James. The church of Babylon hates the blood brother of Jesus Christ because they know that he teaches that you must do something. 
They hate that principle. Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rehab the harlot, the prostitute, also righteous by her works, or justified by her works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You cannot enter the fullness of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the new heavens and the new earth. You cannot enter the fullness of the kingdom or heaven without works. You cannot do it. You cannot do it because your faith would be dead. If you have no works, your faith is useless, dead. You have to show fruit. And you cannot have fruit without works. Cannot have wages without work. Now let's go back, keeping all of this in mind, going back to Romans 2. And knowing that we have also read, even Paul, that we're, we're going to be judged by our works as well, and that Peter and James. I mean, and Paul and all these people all agree. Amen. Romans 2, verse 14. Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, when he says do not have the law, he doesn't mean the law does not apply to them. That's not what he means. What he means is the law was first given to the Israelites and the Jews, but not to the Gentiles at first. And that's why the Gentiles do not have the law, because it was not yet fully preached to them yet as much as the Jews and the Israelites. And God was calling the Jew first, as the scriptures tell us, that he called the Jews first. So the gospel was first preached to the Jews and Manasseh and Ephraim and all of the Israelite tribes, but not to the Gentiles. Even though it was available to them, it was not preached and delivered to them as much. And so the Jews had it. They had the law. They had the gospel. But the Gentiles did not. That doesn't mean that it did not apply to them. The Ten Commandments applied to every person on earth, even in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, it was wrong to murder somebody, whether you lived in uh, the jungles of Africa or in the Middle East or in Israel or Russia or China or Australia, wherever a person may have lived in the times of the Old Testament, during the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, it would have still been wrong to murder in the other nation just as wrong as it would have been. Do we really believe? that it was only a sin only for the Jews to murder somebody? Come on now. The law is for all races, but it just was not delivered to the Gentiles as much. But they still did it instinctively, it says here in verse 14. They didn't have that law delivered to them as much, but they do instinctively 
the things of the law. It's common sense. It is instinct that God has gave every one of us that it is wrong to steal, that it is wrong to bear a false witness, that it is wrong to murder. That is a natural human instinct. And guess what? The law is built in our hearts. The law is built in our mind. The law is built in our instinct. How can we say that that is done away with when it is part of our creation? The law of the Ten Commandments was created at the same time he created the heavens and the earth. Not at the birth of Moses, but rather in the very creation itself. The law of gravity, the law of the seventh day, is ingrained into your DNA, into your chromosomes, into your genes. There is the law of the seventh day that your body does work on a seven-day cycle. Animals, their genes, their chromosomes work on a seven-day cycle. The trees, the fires, the plants, the herbs, everything that is alive in the universe has a seven-day frequency, a seven-day pattern. It's a matter of science. It's documented. The law was created, even the seventh day was created within. Even the trees and the plants, even the trees and the plants and the birds, praise God, even the beavers keep the seventh day. Many of them, some of them, some of them might have been Jehovah's Witness beavers, I don't know, but many beavers keep the seventh day, and that's the truth. Look it up. So they instinctively, even animals have instinct, the things of the law, these, not having the law and not being delivered to them, are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written, uh, look, 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 that in their hearts. I didn't even know that was in there in that next verse. God did. I didn't know that was in that next verse. I just knew it was the truth and that it was scripture. But I didn't know it was the next verse. The Spirit confirms himself and vindicates himself. And that they show that the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts are, are tentatively accusing or else defending. On the day when, according to my gospel, Theos will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ. But if you bear the name Jew and rely, focus, and rely and depend on the law and boast in Theos and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Who, you who preach that one should not steal? Do you not steal? In other words, he's saying, aren't you hypocrites? That's what he's saying. He's going back to what he started saying in verse 1 and verse 2. So he's saying you're focusing on the law and you're talking about God and you're glorifying God and you're, and you're teaching people and you're helping people, but you're still a hypocrite, bottom line. So he's not teaching against the law. What he's teaching against is 
hypocrisy. Amen. That's the context. Verse 1, verse 2, and now he comes back to it, hypocrisy. The context is not that he hates the law and that you don't have to obey the law. Right? Right. Now, context is don't be a hypocrite. Now, verse 22, you say, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you do that by not paying your tithes too as well, according to Scripture. You who boast in the law, through you, you're breaking the law, do you dishonor the oaths? He's asking questions to get people to think. For the name of Theos is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the ordinances of the law, which is completely different from the Ten Commandments. The ordinances of the law underline, because that is very, very significant. Ordinances of the law is entirely different from the commandments. The ordinances were put in one particular spot, in the side of the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, in the side drawers of the Ark of the Covenant, the ordinances were placed. But the Ten Commandments was placed in an entirely different location, separate to themselves. The Ten Commandments was placed on the enter, the inner center compartment inside, directly underneath the mercy seat. Two different locations, two different laws, two different sets. Now, if the uncircumcised man keeps the ordinances of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, through the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law because you're hypocrites? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, a true Jew, is one who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the latter. And his praise is not from men, but from theos. Amen. So, Paul says, basically, do not be a hypocrite and realize that the circumcision is only a letter of the law that is pointless except for a foreshadowing and that the real circumcision should be in our hearts, that we need to cut the sin out of our hearts. 
That is true circumcision. And a true Jew, as far as who are the true nation of Israel, who is the true, spiritually speaking, not discounting the physical tribes. So many people that make that mistake, they start to realize about the spiritual nation of Israel, which is the church, and then they start discounting the physical tribes of Israel. You cannot do that. Both are true. There are physical tribes of Israel. Do not denounce that. Do not, uh, do not try to say just because there is a spiritual Israel that there is not a physical Israel because that's stupid. And that, that is stupid to say just because there is a spiritual Israel, the church, that there is no longer a physical Israel. Come on now. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had lots and lots of kids. Their kids had kids. Their kids have kids. Their kids had kids, and so on. And the promises to those tribes are promised forever and forever without end. There is an everlasting covenant with those physical bloodlines. And you cannot deny that. That is very clear in Scripture. Those tribes did not cease to, uh, to exist. There is still a physical Israel. But the focus should be on the spiritual. That the spiritual, that you don't have to be a physical descendant of one of those tribes. You don't have to be. You do not have to be a physical descendant because now the law and the gospel is now being delivered to the Gentiles. And we are now living in what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. And it is now the people in Africa and Korea that are coming to the truth more than anyone more than Americans, more than the tribe of Manasseh, more than the tribe of Judah. It is the Africans and the people in the Philippines and, and other races and the Koreans and the other people all across the world that are now coming into the fold. Amen. And we're living in the times of the Gentiles. And we should not require the Gentile men, nor the Jewish men, nor any man, to be circumcised, because that doesn't solve nothing. It doesn't do nothing. It's about, it is about the heart. It is about the spirit. It is about the mind and man, rather than the flesh. And Paul preached that more than anything. He was fighting against circumcision. He never fought against the southern state. Never, ever. He fought against circumcision. He was obsessed with circumcision. He had to be. And we need to become obsessed about preaching against circumcision because it would shock you how many so-called followers of Jesus still think that the men must be circumcised. Mind-blowing. They've come in here time and time again telling me you have to be circumcised. And I'm like, you tell me that? Then next time you sin, next time you commit any sin, you have to go and go kill a goat. 
You have got to find you a, a sheep. You have got to sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of your sins because you say no law is done away. And they will pull that verse out every time. No law is done away. Well, then guess what? The blood of Jesus has no effect upon you. And not only according to your law and your understanding, not only must I be circumcised, but you've got to kill an animal. And you've got to stone the homosexual. And you've got to kill the witch. You've got to kill your next-door neighbor and everything. If no law, if no law is done away, then you've got to do all that. That is what Paul was teaching them. And Lord have mercy. Here, 2,000 years later, I still got to teach the same thing. Lord have mercy. That makes me want to just take a bunch of pieces of paper and books and ink pens and just throw them all up in the air. 2,000 years later, people still do not understand this very basic elementary thing. That foreskin doesn't do nothing. Crazy. Insane. And we've got to talk about it more and not be shy and not be bashful and not be embarrassed about it. We have to talk about these things more because there's a war against men. You know that. You know it's true. So we've got to stop thinking that such things are taboo and talk about these things because it's mind-blowing how many people still have the same mentality the same legalism that Paul had to wage war against. Lord, have mercy on all of us. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect... Uh, first of all, that they were in, in, entrusted with the oracles of God, the words of God, the doctrines, the gospel, the teachings, the Jews, Israel, they were taught the word of God. What then, verse 3, if some did not believe their unbelief, which again, remember the Greek, means not only unbelief but disobey as well, both tied together their unbelief, will not nullify the faithfulness of Theos, will it? May it never be. Rather, let Theos be found true, though every man a liar. It is written, as it is written, that you are right in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, God is just. His words are right. His words are true. And his word will be fulfilled. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness or displays or reveals the righteousness of Theos, what shall we say? That word demonstrate, Robert, who is my scribe, man of God, student of Jesus Christ, demonstrates, I think probably Robert sent that to me, probably needs to be changed to reveals. But if our unrighteousness reveals the righteousness, our unrighteousness reveals the righteousness of Theos, what shall we say? 
the theos who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will theos judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of theos abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Paul likes to talk in circles a lot. And he questions and he brings up questions to get people thinking. Sometimes it's not really a statement, but truly only a question to get people thinking. And verse 8, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may, be, may come, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for theos. All have turned aside. Together they have all become, it doesn't say all, but together they have come, become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. How many times have I seen that distorted? So many people take those verses right there and they say, I'm not good. You're not good. Nobody is good. We can't do any good work. We cannot obey the word of God. We cannot obey God. We don't have to obey God. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to be obedient. And there's nothing we can do that's good or righteous and we're not righteous. Come on now. Come on. Read the whole Bible. We are called unto good works. We are called unto righteousness. We must bear forth good fruit. Take the whole, the sum of Scripture, not just bits and pieces. We can be good and we better be good. We better, we better be found worthy of the kingdom. And yes, our robes used to be unrighteous and our robes used to be filthy as rags and our righteousness used to be like rags of filthy rags. But that should not always be the way it is. If we show up at the marriage supper in, in, in robes, of righteousness being as filthy rags, we will not be allowed to stay at the marriage supper. Did you not read that parable? Amen. That the people that show up at the marriage supper or try to show up at the marriage supper uh, without proper attire, without your robe clean, pressed, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, that you will be cast out? Amen? You have got to be found worthy of the holy kingdom. If you are not righteous, if you are not good, if you are incapable of doing any good thing or any righteous thing, what is Matthew 5? I mean, Matthew 25. The last parable of Matthew 25 talking about Judgment Day at the end of the 1,100 years, of where 
the sheep will be on the right, and the wolves or dogs or whatever, the goats, goats on the left, sheep on the right. And Jesus will say, you did this, and you did not do this. You did this, and you did not do this. He would judge us by our works. And he would say to some people, you visited me in prison. You visited me. You fed me. You gave me water. You gave me clothes. So how can you say you can't do any good thing? Come on now. Be real. Of course we can do good things. Of course, of course we can become, we better become righteous. And we better do good things or else we would be cast out. But what these scriptures really mean is that we have all sinned, we have all made mistakes, and we were all, we all were unrighteous. And we all did at one time in our life. We're sinners and lost and wicked. We all were those things, but now are you worst in Jesus Christ and made clean and justified and vindicated to where the judge would say, I see the blood over you. I see the Passover blood over you. You will not die. You will not die the second death. I see the Passover blood of the Lamb of God over you. You are covered under the blood. You are washed by the blood of Jesus. It is done, and all your sins are washed away. If, if you have repented and walked in the truth, followed him, but been more than a follower, but a true bride, intimate and faithful and true to the end. Then he will say to you, well done, faithful servant. Even, even that word faithful servant is a worker. Servant is a worker. Well done, faithful servant. That word, that phrase right there proves that you must work. Amen but not in a legalistic way. Amen. So he's telling, Paul is telling these people who focus entirely on the law, the letter of the law, including circumcision, he's saying we all have sinned and been unfaithful and, and sinful and dirty at one time. And let's see, let's see, let's read this. And people have not sought God. Verse 11, there is none who understands. Well, I think you understand, and I think I understand, but he's saying that there's a lot of people who don't understand, and we've all been there. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for theos. All that have turned aside, together have they have become useless. There is none that does good, not even one. Well, that's just a person who is writing a song. That comes from the book of Psalms 14. And guess what? The songs are only songs. Emotions. Emotions of a man who is venting while he is writing poetry. The songs many times are like uh, parables. When Jesus told all of the parables, and he said, well, one man went to the field, and they had this conversation, and, 
and the master of the field said such and such. That did not actually happen. The, the, the parables are only stories, made-up stories. And this quotation from Psalm 14 is nothing more than a man who is frustrated at the sins of the world. It is not true that no one has sought God. It is not true that there's never been a righteous man. Abraham was found righteous. Amen? It is not true that there's not one person on this earth that has sought God. This is only a man writing a song, Psalm 14, who is frustrated with the sins of the world. You've got to start understanding that the songs are songs. And this very, very, very frustrated man in verse 13 says, their throat is a whooping grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The, the poison of vipers is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of fears before their eyes. End quote from these different songs. Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, and Isaiah 59. Now we come to verse 19, where he's no longer quoting Scripture. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are covered by the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to the others. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, if you read that verse all by itself, it makes it sound very clear. We don't have to obey God. If you read that one verse all by itself, it seems to contradict what he said in other verses. It seems to contradict James. It seems to contradict Jesus. But it really don't. It only seems like that because our human mind has a trouble keeping the context. Especially with a bunch of footnotes and preacher rambling on and so forth. Hard to keep the context. But we know that Paul wouldn't contradict himself unless he does it only to get people thinking. In verse 1, he's talking about circumcision. Amen? Let's not forget that. Circumcision. Well, that ain't going to do nothing. That's not going to get nobody to heaven, will it? No. Self-mutilation or mutilation of the flesh will not get anyone into heaven. Where is there anything about the seventh day here? Nothing. Nothing about the seventh day, right? Remember, he's speaking to a group of very legalistic people. That's part of the context as well. 
Amen. So I believe then that what Paul is saying by the works of the law, no flesh will be righteous in his sight, is condemning the legalistic thinking of that you can earn your way to heaven by mutilating the flesh. But there is some law that we must keep. And he comes back to that, I think, later here. And it says here in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of Theos has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of Theos through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Jesus, Theos, being acquitted or justified by as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, through whom the Theos displayed publicly as a propilitation in his blood. Propilitation, I know I can't pronounce it, but what it means, though, is something that pleases God and takes care of the matter. It pleases him. It reduces his wrath. It takes care of the situation. It's like the fine is paid. It takes care of the situation. It pleases him. When the Theos displayed publicly, talking about Jesus, the redemption, the Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, this was displayed publicly to pay your fine in the blood through true faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of the Theos, he passed over the sins previously committed. The blood of Theos over the doorpost. The blood of Theos, the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood he sees the Passover blood and he cleanses the sins previously committed. So Paul is trying to turn legalistic people over to Jesus Christ. Yes, he's teaching faith, but that doesn't erase Ten Commandments to teach faith. He's trying to people, trying to get the people to understand spiritual things and that the spirit has more power than the flesh and that they got to think spiritually that is what he's trying to do to this group of people that he wrote this letter to the book of Romans was a letter that he wrote to the congregation at Rome and he's trying to get those people to think spiritually and to not focus on vain bloody animal sacrifices, and vain, bloody circumcision. That's the context. So let's move forward. Verse 26, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the one who acquits or justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? 
it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by faith of law of faith. For we maintain that a man is acquitted or justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is the, I see a misprint there. So Robert, please send me that. I may have already corrected it on the PDF. I don't know, but please send it to me again in case. Or is Theos, the Theos, over Jews only? Or is he, it might even be, or is he the Theos, over Jews only? Or is he not over Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since indeed the Theos, who will acquit the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith is one spirit, one being, one person, same God. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Look at that. Look at that last sentence. Look at that last sentence. Do we nullify, do away with, delete, erase the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Woo, throw up your papers in the air. Paul, you're so confusing. <laughs> but I say throw up your papers. I mean, literally. Okay. So, yeah, he's confusing. It seems like he talks in circles. But the final sentence of that chapter is, no, we do not erase the law. It's just that we have to understand the law, understand what is done away and what's not done away. What does God really expect from us? That's what we need to understand. And how we do that is have faith, to believe God. Yes, we do say a first prayer. Yes, we do read the Bible. Yes, we do fast. But the bottom line is this. You can keep the seventh day. You can keep the holy days. And you can be baptized and still be lost. I've seen it happen over and over and over. It is because you keep all the law does not mean that you are saved. We've had people come in here who I baptized, and they kept the holy days, and they kept the seventh day, and they bought them a set of the Alpha and Omega Bible. And then they went and committed whoredom, adultery against Jesus Christ and went and worshipped false gods. They were not saved. Amen? The salvation is not through the letter of the law, even though we must keep some law. But you're not saved by keeping law. You're saved by the blood of Jesus. You're saved by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. You're saved because the blood of Jesus was shed for you and actually truly applied toward you. But if you are a brute beast, unreasoning, with a bunch of head knowledge and intelligence, but still a stupid fool, then you're not saved. That's a matter of what's on the inside of you. Has your heart been circumcised? 
Too many people, it's about the head knowledge and a love of facts, but not a true, genuine love of God himself. People thought they were sliding on the ring of baptism, saying, I do, Lord, I I marry you, I'm your bride. But their heart was not true. They thought their heart was true. Judas Iscariot cried very much after portraying Jesus. He cried in much tears, looking for repentance, seeking repentance, trying for repentance. But his heart was wicked, which led him to commit suicide. Because even though he cried much for repentance, knowing his sins, confessing his sins, his heart was still wicked. So we've got to search ourselves. Have we only been doing the outward appearance, like the Pharisees, the whitewashed tombs? Have we only just put on the makeup, the mask? Let us examine ourselves. Have we just put on a mask and pretend to be a Christian? Are we hypocrites? Have our hearts really turned to the Lord? We love God. Do we want to spend time with him? Do we love his word? Do we love the Bible? Do we love the scriptures? And are we treating people right? Amen. There's a lot to it, ain't it? A lot to think about. I'm not going to turn to it, but you can write it down in your notes. I hope everybody has an ink pen and paper. Because we need to take notes. There's a lot to this. You can write down in your notes, Romans 5, verse 9. Romans 5, verse 9, that we're justified by his blood. We're made righteous. That's what justification is, is that even though we all did sin, that his blood is applied. That his blood is not in vain. That it's not fake. That his blood really has taken effect over us. Justification is that we are acquitted because he paid the fine. And we are made righteous even though we were not righteous. We were dogs. We were not a people. But now we are a people. We are a nation. We are a royal priesthood, kings and priests with Jesus Christ because of his blood, because of his spirit, not because of what we have done, even though we must do things. At the end of the day, it's because Christ died for us. And because of that, we should love him more. We always have to go back to putting our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we must keep the commandments. We must keep the holy days. But we have to put our eyes on Jesus. 
And when we keep the seventh day and the holy days, let's not be doing so only because the law thus says. Only because the law thus says. But rather because the holy day is a delight. Because the seventh day is a delight. Time to spend with our husband. Time to spend with our lover. Time to spend with the lover of our souls. Fall in love with Christ. And the more time you spend with him and come to know him and talk with him and listen to him and follow him and obey him, the more you will fall in love with him because he is great. Lover of our souls. Our kinsman redeemer. The whole Bible is a love story. And he loved us while we were still yet sinners. And that's the bottom line. Love story. Yes, obey God. But not just because it is the do's and the don'ts, but because you want to please him. And it's the right thing. And you come to realize that he is just in his law and his judgments and his ways. It may not always make sense to us, but he is right. His way works. And live right because it is the right way. Because he is right. Amen. Not just because the book says so. Not just because the Bible says so. Not just because we are commanded to do certain things. Don't help the poor just because you're commanded to help the poor. But because you have a love for that person. Because you've you've been in the valley yourself, that you can help that person, not because the law says you must do it. Now, this would be entirely off subject, but I want you to look, write down in your notes one more verse, not having anything to do necessarily with justification. But something I saw today that I want to bring out to you because it is a verse that you need to put like in the front cover or back cover of your Bible to help you find it very quickly. Anytime that you are confronted with these demonic people that say that Jesus is not God. And that verse is 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 says that God was manifest in the flesh. But Theos became manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3, 16. That proves as many as as well also as many, many, many other verses. You can barely go past a page or two of the Bible that doesn't prove that Jesus is God. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. But that 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, that God was manifest in the flesh. Well, when, that, when, when? when did that happen? If it wasn't Jesus, who was it? Jesus is the only possibility. And we know in the context, yes, it's talking about Jesus. Absolutely talking about Jesus. It says he was God. 
how can any any fool on this earth say that Jesus was not God? It is throughout Scripture. It is so clear. There's nothing more clear in Scripture other than his love. Amen? Jesus is God. And that's such a basic principle. Elementary. We don't get that right. I don't keep how, I don't care how much law you keep. That's what Paul was saying. Maybe it, it maybe I, I said it doesn't have nothing to do with it, but I think it does. Come to think of it, this is why God showed me that verse today. Yeah. Faith that Jesus is God. Knowing that Jesus is God, having faith, having belief, following him as God. If you do not follow Jesus as God, then all the law is in vain. Seventh day, the commandments, the holy days, the Passover communion. Hey, Passover communion, without Jesus being God, Passover communion is totally in vain. Ain't that true? That's mind-blowing, man. So many people say Jesus ain't God and they keep Passover. Why are you keeping Passover? If you think Jesus ain't God, if he's not God, then Passover has no meaning except for goats, lambs. Some goat or some lamb is not going to save me from my sin. If Jesus ain't God, there is no hope for humanity. And there is no salvation. And all the keeping of the law is vain. You must well just live as a sinner if Jesus is not God. Without the blood of God, without the blood of the Lamb of God, as him being God in the flesh, there is no reconciliation and no justification. No nothing. And all life is in vain if Jesus is not God. All of our hope is in Jesus. He is everything. Everything. Not the law, but in Jesus. That is where our salvation and our hope and our faith resides. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for hearing the voice of the Lord. Thank you for recognizing the truth. Thank you for being being obedient to God today. Keeping the seventh day, listening to his word, his message delivered only through a mailman and God is great. God is great. They can't say that enough. Not say it enough. Praise the Lord. Praise his holy name. Uh, I invite everybody back to listen next week, Saturday, every Saturday at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Please read the Bible. Please pray. Prepare for Passover. Repent and be baptized. Fall in love with Jesus. Spend time with him 
out under the tree, walking, hiking, spend time with him, get to know him, talk with him as a friend, talk with him more and more and more. He will blow your mind. Amen. He is so awesome. Praise his holy name. Amen.